For almost all substances, the average age of initiation is somewhere around 13 years old. So that's important for people to know because often parents will say, oh, I was going to maybe 14 or 15 start talking about them. It's like, oh, too late. And that's just a fact. Having those ongoing conversations, it is not one conversation. It is not a scare tactic. It is ongoing conversations where you share with them, these are our family values. These are my expectations for you. Welcome to Better Together with Costi Epifonsev, a podcast on parenting, business, and living life intentionally. We're here every week to bring you thoughtful conversation on making your own path to success, challenging the status quo, and finding all the ways we're better together. Here's your host, Costi Epifonsev. Hey, y'all, this is Costa, and today I'm here with my guest, John Rust, Director of State Programs at Power of Putnam. Today, we're discussing the impact of substance abuse on the Upper Cumberland. How fentanyl became the number one cause of death for Americans ages 18 to 45, and when to talk with your children about drugs, substance abuse, and underage drinking. John, I want to put this in perspective for all of our listeners. During the first quarter of this year, 2022, in Davidson County alone, Drug-related overdoses increased by 7% from the previous year. Between the months of January and March of 2022, 173 individuals in Nashville lost their lives due to drug overdose and misuse, most commonly abusing methamphetamines, cocaine, and fentanyl. How did we get here, John? So, the big picture answer about why do people use any substance is usually they've got some hurt in their background and they are trying to soothe. Overall, that's the big thing. Then if you kind of come down a little bit more micro as to what was going on in Tennessee and really in our nation, we eventually did a pretty good job getting prescription opioids controlled. Okay. Where it wasn't so easy to purchase them. You couldn't go buy a gazillion. You couldn't go doctor shop and, and stuff like that. But anytime that you constrict a substance, you wish that there was this connection of people like, oh, I just don't want to use anymore. But, you know, people are addicted. They're still hurting. They still want to use. So kind of what came in to fill the gap when opioids got tighter was fentanyl. Fentanyl is an opioid. It's a synthetic opioid and it's made by chemists. It's made, you know, mostly in other countries and they filled that gap a little bit. And one of the things that I wanted that I had laid out to bring was just to show you two milligrams of fentanyl. If we don't use any kind of opioids or anything like that, it's enough to kill us. That would fit on the tip of a sharpened pencil. Wow. It's very potent. After it's made and you mix it in something, you know, it increases the potency of almost any kind of medication astronomically. It was cheap and it's just kind of like free market. You know, one thing goes away, something comes in to fill that gap. And that's how we got here. Yeah. And I mean, it's just so dangerous, though. I mean, you said 0.2 milligrams, two milligrams. And so, wow. You know, like if you're looking at a penny and look at the date, two milligrams of a crystalline substance would cover up 
one or two of those numbers. And they add this to all kinds of drugs, recreational drugs that people use, you know, and like you said, if somebody hasn't taken opioids in the past and they're given fentanyl, like say, for example, a 14-year-old kid who goes to a party, they essentially could die. Yes, very easily. Is it an inevitability that they probably will die from an overdose because of the potency of fentanyl? So the thing that will keep them from that is someone recognizing it very quickly, calling 911, and if they're trained and have on them an opioid reversal drug, okay, um, that which most people know is naloxone. Okay, got and it. And so you can administer that on the scene. It's a spray, you know, that you can easily do, but the nature of it and the mechanisms of how it works be very easy for someone to pass away Mm -hmm. very quickly works on your respiratory system and it depresses that. So you breathe very shallowly until you quit breathing and you pass away. We're going to get into a lot of the dynamics of fentanyl, how the war on drugs has kind of evolved, what this is doing to our communities, but also to our economies. But I want to get started first on you and your background. You know, you've worked in social services for over 30 years. Tell us about how you started working with Power of Putnam, what substance abuse prevention means to you, and what the greatest goal of your program is today. So it got started in the early 2000s by just being asked to kind of help host a, a meeting Something I didn't really want to do. And it was like, just do this one time and, you know, you can back away from this. This is my executive director where I work. So I heard the message and was intrigued and began to write some grants here locally so that we could get some people trained. Went to the Community Anti-Drug Coalition of America, which is kind of the primo national group that does training and supports coalitions. Went there with Paula King from the school system and Bobby Davis. Um, He was at Trinity Church at that time Mm -hmm. and was trained and really just got bitten by this bug of being able to go back into my community and do something to help improve that. I am intrigued with substance abuse prevention because it's one of the things that when we can do it in a comprehensive way, It strengthens our families. It strengthens our communities. It offers hope to people who are in the midst of recovery. You know, for me, it's really personal on both my maternal and paternal uh, sides of my family. There's a lot of substance abuse. My father struggled with alcohol addiction until I was about 15 years old. And I was a drug endangered child, you know, so it's very personal to me. Our overall goal at Power Putnam is really to do quite a few things. We want to change the environment to make it a little bit harder for kids to get to substances, to know more about them. So we want to educate them. We work with youth. We actually have a youth coalition. And in that, um, one of the things that I'm most proud of, they learn and are educated and stuff like that. But really, we put them in a position to become leaders and 
makes them really cool citizens. Mm -hmm. They tend to stay in that mode once you get bitten with this, like, hey, I can make my community better. They tend to do that the rest of their life. And then our other big part of our goal is we're prevention, but we link arms with the recovery community. So that's probably the other big thing that we do. How long have you been at Power of Putnam? So I started in January, but... You know, I helped write the first grant, I think, that funded it back about 13 years ago. I've always been privileged to be in um, a paid role Mm -hmm. doing work in social services where I could be a participant. So it's like I was always there doing stuff and Bill kind of kept after me and said, why don't you come over here and work for us? So in January, I did. You know, you say social services and I think, okay, I think like welfare and I think DHS and then I also think addiction services but do you specialize and for the last 30 years have you essentially specialized in kind of providing addiction and recovery services I started my career doing children's protective services okay and mostly everything that I've done has been providing social services in the realm of children and their families Lots of different nuances to it and lots of of different ways. So my interest has been for children and families. Are there drugs and alcohol abuse in a lot of the families that you work with? When I work for the Tennessee Commission on Children and Youth, every year we would do kind of the state of the child conference and invite the regional administrator to come over for the Upper Cumberland's uh, Department of Children's Services. And every year they would say between 90 and 95% of all of the kids that are in their cases or that are in custody have some relationship to substance use. My gosh. So it's a huge driver of that child welfare system. Yeah, that is just astoundingly, it blows my mind. And I mean, here's the thing that I'm most curious about through your 30 plus year journey Tennessee was one of the epicenters of the opioid epidemic. You know, I mean, drugs were literally flowing in from Florida, from all over the country, really. And the crazy part about it is insurance, whether it's state, whether it's private, they all paid for these drugs. Here's a crazy statistic. 92% of my clients take a narcotic because we were trying to do an automated expense, like an automated med dispenser. And we were like, okay, you know, now we don't have to have people passing the meds. We can have this machine that's going to dispense the meds for us. Well, we found out that narcotics cannot be automatically dispensed. And so I looked at my COO and I said, well, I mean, surely that's what? Probably the minority of our clients. These are clients that are on 10 care, that are receiving government funded benefits, 92% are on a narcotic. It blew my mind. And it obviously got my wheels turning, but I'll take it a step further. Tennessee's in the epicenter of this opioid drug epidemic. They tighten the screws to make sure that they can't get the access to opioids. We have a record overdose year in 2020. A record overdose year in 2021. We just had a 7% increase from the year prior. You've been doing this for 30 plus years. Do you just ever feel like we are fighting a losing battle 
We just can't get out in front of this thing quickly enough because 90 to 95% of our youth are being affected by these dire circumstances that lead them into substance abuse. I'm hopeful. You know, there are evidence-based practices that communities can do to get out and get ahead and continue working on prevention and intervention efforts. It's hard. None of the issues are simple fixes and you need everybody on board, but I'm hopeful. There's an interesting parallel that I'd like to get into. The Upper Cumberland is growing, but substance abuse isn't a new problem or what I would consider a growing pain. From opioids to methamphetamine, heroin, and now fentanyl, Tennessee has a history of substance abuse and overdose. How has the war on drugs evolved over your career, and how do we end this epidemic? So the war has changed just, I guess, if we could use the metaphor of the weapons. When I started in 1990, you know, families used alcohol, marijuana, some with cocaine, but, you know, that was not an issue. Mm -hmm. Methamphetamine really, really changed the landscape because it was something that you could make at your house. There's some interesting facts. It didn't cover the state as most new drugs did because it was manufactured. Sure. And we kind of grew and moved from there and it escalated really, really quick. You know, it really affected our community quickly. It was the first time that the Upper Cumberland and some other places where methamphetamine kind of landed and infected the area. Mm -hmm that we had to get together and do work in different ways. You know, all the legislators didn't have constituents who were affected by it, so it didn't start at the state level and kind of work its way down. We had to raise awareness and raise our voices and kind of reach out to everybody and say, hey, Upper Cumberland has this problem. You know, and it was a little bit different because there were labs associated with them. People are stealing things out of retail stores and labs were blowing up and stuff like that. So it got everyone's attention. Was the Upper Cumberland the epicenter of the meth epidemic? It probably wasn't the epicenter, but Southeast Tennessee was. Okay. There was a couple guys that had learned to make meth in California and came back into Tennessee and started charging people to learn how to do it. And so it was like, I don't know, starting a new business and wherever you landed first, that was where the stuff was generated out of. So it was not a huge issue in Memphis, anywhere between there and Nashville. And so it made the resolution and and just, you know, trying to solve this issue very different, but it made us better advocates. Yeah. And also, I think you guys had to develop, like you were saying, with regards to the cooperation and state resources, like it, it formalized the process of dealing with a illicit substance like methamphetamines. Yeah. But I got to go back yeah. to that point that I made earlier about, you know, you had meth, you had an opioid epidemic. Now you have fentanyl, Mm -hmm. and fentanyl kills, Mm -hmm. and it's everywhere. It's cheap. It's in everything. How are you going to get a handle on that? And again, I'm big. I'm big (laughs) on science. I know. know, know. This is such a hard thing to answer. I mean, but there is an answer. We do it through prevention. We do it through intervention. We do it through making sure that we have treatment for the people who are already stuck in this disease. We got to change our community norms. 
So we we have to rise up in our community and say, no, we're not going to accept it. We're not going to let our retailers sell alcohol to underage kids. Right. We're not going to smoke anywhere on our school property, even if that means, you know, doing some things when parents are on the campus to come watch football or something like that. We've just got to really bring awareness to the big reason that folks become addicted. Um, We talked a little bit offline about the adversity or the trauma that difficulties that people undergo before they turn 18. Substances kind of soothe that hurt. Sure. And we can make our community a more healthy place to live where kids grow up in a way where substances are not going to be the thing that they turn to. What are those 10 things? I know you said there was a study of like 17,000 kids Mm. and there are... 10 different things, I think you named off 9 out of 10, which is fine, that contributes to a elevated risk of substance abuse later in life. So back in 1996 and 97, Dr. Felitti at um, Kaiser Permanente, and he worked with Dr. Anda at the CDC, and they had done some preliminary work, and they came up with these 10 factors Some of them are individual with a kid, physical, sexual, or abuse, neglect, uh, and then things that were in a child's family, divorce, a relative that had a mental illness, incarceration, some things like that. And they looked at what's the relationship as those grow in a child's life. Because Kaiser Permanente is a managed healthcare organization, they started out looking at health. But they saw it was income potential, education potential, that there's this huge relationship. The more of those that you have, the more likely your later health outcomes, education, work outcomes. And actually, the interesting thing about it, if you have four, and we call them ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, you're likely to die between five and 10 years early. Really? If you have six or more you're likely to die 20 years earlier. Wow. I'm 60. You know, if I've got six or more ACEs, the relationship for me is I'll die pretty soon. And so they really started looking at that. And it's like, whoa, we can change public policy. We can work on health issues early in life. Right. And so I'm just a huge proponent of that. My 30 years That was intuitive to me. I would see families that had so much difficulty and that relationship to substances was was deep for them because it kind of fit a need. But then when you extrapolate that out and begin to look at a community, you're like, whoa, we need to do something about this. And it's like that that thing where you say, you know, when the water rises in the harbor, every ship lifts. Yeah. And so if we make our community better for this, it's it's better for all. And, you know, as you bring awareness to those instances, you know, those nine or 10 things that people are affected by, and as you're, as you're naming them out, I think to myself, who isn't incorporated into that list? Who hasn't been a product of divorce? 50% of, of married couples go through a divorce. Who hasn't had physical abuse? And I could even point to say that maybe even like fighting in school. There's actually, um, as that body of research has increased, so so one of the things is your minority status. So if you are a kid 
who is a minority, you know, and that that one's interesting too. You can't look at me and tell that I had a father that was an alcoholic or if my parents divorced or if someone had mental illness. But if I'm a minority, I carry that adversity around really? with me everywhere. Yeah, because you look at me and people have biases and stuff sure. like that. And I'm always going to be treated different. I'm always going to know if I get pulled over by the police. Mm -hmm. I'm more apt to be in a dangerous situation. Right. So there's that. Kids that are bullied, living in a violent neighborhood, seeing violence. Yeah. Those kinds of things have that same relationship of changing your health status, your education status, things like that. Well, and, and I'm, I promise I will not pull you down a rabbit hole, but you said um, seeing violence. And I have to say this because it's extremely important. This weekend I was talking to a friend of mine and he said that he was communicating and I'm not going to get conspiratorial or anything, but he was having a conversation with another friend. And that evening on Facebook, he started to see posts that were violent in nature and that were kind of like more far right violent and things like that. And he was perplexed because he didn't welcome or introduce those types of posts into his feed. But there they were. Yes. I mean, how does social media play into this? I will say, you know, there's no science or evidence that I know that that makes it equal to those other average child experiences. But there's definitely a difference. Like as a kid, you know, I was 12 years old, grew up in Sparta, lived out in the rural region. You know, I didn't see any violence. But if I had lived in inner city Memphis, mm -hmm. I would have known kids that were involved in drive by shootings. I would have not had the expectation that people that I were in school with, that all of them would live throughout the year without being hurt. That changes our body when we live in that circumstance of thinking, I don't know if I'm safe ever. You know, just seeing that, just living in a neighborhood with that changes our body. Mm -hmm. You know, he talked about um, making sure that there was necessary resources providing all the wraparound supports uh, that are necessary. I went to San Francisco in 2019, and I've read multiple articles uh, in the San Francisco Times uh, and LA Times that are describing the homeless epidemic that they're experiencing in California. I recently just went to San Diego, same exact thing there. Is it a funding issue? Like, can we fund our way out of this? Because if it's not a funding issue... Why is everybody telling us that it is? Just fund mental health and you'll be fine. So probably if you talk to anybody who works with the homeless, you're, you're going to hear that, yes, they do have a mental health issue. That's probably that's their core issue. Sure. One of the cheapest ways, if you're homeless, to treat that is through substances. And so, yes, if we did have money for those resources, that would be a big help. But I would say... A fundamental kind of bedrock thing that we have to understand about that. It's so easy to look at these people as irritants or just get a job or do this or do that, or they're always going to be there with you or whatever. But until, you know, there's some humanity brought to that and some strategy of really trying to help those core things, you know, like we could have a lot of affordable housing and that won't help it, you know, because if at my core, 
I am mentally unwell and I can't balance out my life on my own. Being in home, going to work, that's too complicated for me. Right. I've got to be well and I have to be in relationship to be well. So as a community, we're going to have to embrace and engage and love folks that are dealing with these issues. And I'm so glad that you said affordable housing. And it's actually why I asked the question about San Francisco, because the most recent article that I read, they have increased their public housing considerably. And guess what? So did their overdose rates. And people were dying in their public housing units, you know? And so it's not just a question of affordability. We will get back to this thought. (laughs) We will get back to targeting those core issues to really reverse kind of the approach to to substance abuse uh, and the understanding behind substance abuse. So I want to talk about how Cookville is being affected by this. How do you define abuse prevention on a micro scale? Why is this education and awareness critical to breaking the cycle of generational abuse? But on a macro scale. How does substance abuse hinder the development of a community? Well, let me start out as you ask it. So the micro area in prevention. So the evidence-based practices include change in policy, practice, and procedure. So like something that our world is dealing with right now, Kids pretty much gave up smoking tobacco and moved to vaping. Right. That is an issue right now for all of our public schools in America. What do we do? So we've got to change the policy, the practice, and the procedure for doing that. So that's kind of what I mean by that one. A piece of it is providing information, you know, and that can be the education part. That can be the awareness. Even what we talked about with fentanyl, how much is two milligrams? Building skills into kids to say no, to do something else, to understand other things that they can do. Building leaders, providing support, providing support to the people who are doing the prevention work, to kids, to other organizations. So changing barriers or changing access. So like one example that most coalitions do Around prom time or graduation time, we ask retailers, can we put some stickers around your building or on um, some alcohol that just says, it's the law in Tennessee, we're going to ID. We do compliance checks because we want to reduce the access to alcohol. Is that a problem? Yes. Really? Yes. You mean still? Because I mean, if I ever go buy alcohol, I get ID'd every time. In June, we spent three nights with the Cookville Police Department going around doing compliance checks. Part of it is not having a system in place to check the ID. Part of it is people make a math error. We had one place that we went in. We had a a young lady who was, I think, 18 or 19, went in to purchase, showed her ID. Uh, The clerk put in a different date of birth and sold to her. And it printed out on the receipt. It still happens. Sometimes it's because people are in a hurry or they don't think, but there's still a component of it that we don't see the dangers. We don't realize as retailers, you are one of the first lines of defense to changing the alcohol and tobacco issue in our community. 
don't sell. It's the law. Yeah. Just check an ID. The other thing that we're doing is changing consequences or giving incentives for doing the right things, recognizing the kids that are doing it right. The other thing that we do is, you know, changing the physical design. We've got, I forget how many no smoking signs ordered that we're going to give to our school system that are going to be put out along the perimeters of outdoor sports fields. Because again, parents, different spectators come in and they, they may not realize school grounds mean school grounds. You can't smoke, you can't vape, you can't drink here. And so, you know, that reminder, all of those eight things come together and that's what micro prevention is. You do it in a culturally competent way with a plan that fits for your community involving the community. And then the macro is, if we're talking about Tennessee, you do that everywhere you can. Then when we're talking about policies, practices and procedures, we can build awareness in our general assembly. You know, sometimes things need to change. Like we we have this issue right now with Delta 8. You know, it's legal for anyone in Tennessee to walk in and buy it. Crazy, right? It's everywhere. Completely unregulated. It's at the gas station on the way home. Yep. You know, one of the macro level things that we can do is talk to our legislators and say, what can we do to keep our kids safe? That'll be an ongoing issue that all coalitions will work on. I mean, you don't have any trouble, though, getting that type of resolution passed or like a bill put into law. I mean, how can you? Well, I guess history does say something a little bit different. But I mean, well, we won't talk about the General Assembly. Let's leave that for another conversation. I I do want to know, though, like from a macro perspective, and let's take it to economics how does this affect our ability or is this a direct correlation to the labor issues that we're experiencing? Because some of the labor that we're looking for or some of the people who are out of the labor participation market is due to substance abuse issues. Yes. There's the whole ACEs thing. The more adversity you've had, the more work you're going to miss, the more you're not being able to function as a worker that you need to be. So there's that piece to it. You know, there's sectors of the labor market that will say you, you know, you can't have a forklift driver using any substances. You've got some other things where it's like zero tolerance. And then you've got this thing, too, that we hear from retailers across the state is that if I'm a substance user and I'm going to look for a new job, I'm going to assume you're going to drug test me. So I'm going to come in here. I'm going to come in with a clean drug test. I'm going to come to work for you. I'm going to be out visiting people, doing stuff like that. And and one day you're going to do a random drug screen. And I'm going to be like, oh, I'm not going to pass this. Right. So I'm going to lose my job. And you can look at that. Okay, that's just this individual consequence that I took on. But you took it on, too, because you invested in me. You trained me. You've got to start again. And that's just kind of a scenario that's repeated itself in really our nation, but specifically Tennessee. So if I am going to bring a new company here, there's so much data that I can look at. I can look at, do we have a great hospital? Do we have a good education system? And I can get online too and look at how many people from this region use state funded dollars for treatment. Right. And I can get a good idea. Am I going to have enough of the kind of people that I need to run my business. And if I'm not, why would I come here? So, I mean, how are we doing now? 
we're seeing businesses that say, man, we spend so much dollars training. We've seen some of our businesses make alterations, you know, where they where they have a little bit more liberal policy about we want to keep you here. We'll support you while you go get treatment. Right. We'll make changes. But there's kind of secondary and tertiary pieces of this, too. So I'm I'm a grandparent. So say I'm taking care of my grandkids because my uh, daughter and son-in-law are in treatment in this scenario. And so I have kids. So suddenly I have to go to juvenile court. I might have to go wherever they're incarcerated to visit. I become a different worker, even though I don't have any substance use issues. You know, as an older worker, I'm going to work longer. I'm going to, you know, all those things. And so it is a community issue. We can't look at it as individuals like this individual needs to quit using substances. Let them bear the consequences. Our schools are bearing the consequences. Our economy is bearing the consequences. Our just overall community is. Is it impossible to eliminate the flow of drugs into the United States? That's not my area of expertise. That's also something that I've not <laughs> seen. Um, I'm, just, I'm just curious in terms of your opinion. And yeah. Is it possible? We have a really hard time with it because... You know, it's it's an illicit market. Right. And so it doesn't even work the way any other retailer market works because ethics are kind of out the window, you know. And so you, you see a market rise and if you can fill it, great. And that's what we see with a lot of it. So let's just for sake of this conversation, say it's impossible. Mm-hmm. OK, you already mentioned some of the liberal policies that companies are taking. We see almost half the country now in terms of different states legalizing marijuana, whether it's medicinal or recreational. We're now right at the uh, kind of the doorsteps of legalizing psychedelic drugs like psilocybin and LSD, DMT, etc. Are we shifting to the point to where we are just living with drugs? Or do you think that we are reaching somewhat of an inflection point because... If people want to get high, that's not going to make them a productive member of society. The legalization of more and more drugs makes the work of preventionists a lot harder. I remember going to that CADCA training. It was out in San Francisco. And I remember one of the things that we learned, this was several, several years ago, and they were talking about marijuana prevention. And they said, think of it as a stool. There's three things that keeps kids from using. It's illegal. Their parents are against it. And I think the other thing was just this kind of moral compass thing. Like, this is not a good thing to do. And they're like, if we break any of those legs off the stool, it's not going to stand. You know, generationally, it's changed where we have more people that grew up using marijuana throughout their lifetime. And so they have a different view of how harmful that could be to their kids. We're getting closer and closer to prevention. And so for kids, you know, and I've heard these arguments from kids, it's natural. People with cancer use it. I think it heals people with cancer. You know, all of these things, it's non-addictive. Right. It's like anything grown. It's not organic. 
there's pesticide used on it. It easily rots and grows mold and stuff like that. And then we've already talked about all the things it could be mixed with. But a developing brain does not need any additional substance that could harm its development. So they're kind of, we are with, you know, marijuana. But I think as more people use and see this kind of as just a part of our life, it makes it harder for folks to understand the dangers, the risks that can be there. I'm just going to share my opinion for what it's worth. I feel like we are all pulling in different directions. You know, you said you went to a conference in San Francisco, and I'm sure that you go to conferences all around the United States, maybe even the world. And everyone has a different approach to addiction, to recovery services. Back in the day, we used to have DARE in school, you know, and it brought awareness about drugs. They'd bring in all the different drugs. Now they're saying that DARE was a bad thing because it may have like given people a little bit more comfort around these substances that they may have never seen before. You say zero tolerance for certain jobs, while other companies, you know, are a little bit more liberal or in industries for that matter. I feel like in everything, you know, whether it's climate change, whether it's drugs and alcohol abuse, whether it's racism, whatever it is, until it gets to a period where it's untenable. And and I feel like we're getting pretty close to, I mean, we all, we're already breaking records every single year. You know, at some point we're going to be like, okay, this is untenable. You know, mm-hmm. people just aren't willing to come together and say, it's a hard no here. It's a hard no. And I think you raised the issue of, you know, everyone looking at it differently and it does make everyone's approach different. You know, if I feel like it's a moral issue, there's a moral solution. If I feel like it's a medical issue, there's a medical solution, you know, kind of whatever lens that I'm looking through, you know, and I think even one of the things that makes it a little bit more difficult now is our overall big political climate of, you know, we're on one side or the other. We're not known to come together and kind of talk through issues, you know, and that's why a lot of my language is about the our community, our population, our kids. The U.S. is a very individualistic society, and when we're talking about prevention and recovery services and stuff like that, that makes it hard because we expect an individual to come up with their way of stopping. Right. But we also look at it as like, oh, my opinion is this, Costa, yours is this other, and and we're entitled to our own opinion, right? Don't tread on me. And, you know, we're built on an individualistic society. It's a tough road to hoe there. In your opinion, does the average person truly understand the issues of substance abuse in our area? What's the most common misconception? And what do you wish more people knew about those with substance abuse issues? I do think probably most people don't understand the substance abuse issue in their own community. Part of our issue is that we are short on resources for people either in the prevention side, the intervention side, and definitely for the recovery side, sure. people who are addicted and, and have this disease. I don't think we understand why do people use, again, we look at it very individualistically, it's just your choice. and. One of the most helpful things to me was seeing that research around adverse childhood experiences. 
and seeing that people try to right their boat when it's not floating right. And one of the things that you can do is a substance. We all know it's not a great solution and it creates a bunch more problems. But if we could see people through a different lens and not like, what's wrong with you? But like, what was your experience? Why are you here? So that's a big thing. I don't think that people see the impact on kids. And two, we've talked about substance use. What I'm reminded of, I was just at training around drug and danger children. There are times where you're just a user, but sometimes you're a distributor as well. So if my kids see me distribute drugs out of our house all the time, there's this revolving door of people, cash, guns, all the things that go on. Or if I'm a manufacturer, if I grow pot, I'm going to tell my kids, don't you tell anyone about this. Or if we've got methamphetamine cooking in the back shed, sure. don't you tell anybody about this. Kids live under a lot of pressure, you know, so there's that impact there. But there's this huge impact on our economy and our ability to grow. Serving children impacted or at risk costs money. And, you know, in the school system, it diverts from just educating and it makes things more complicated. We've talked about how it complicates our economic growth. The thing that I want people to know, because again, we talked about individualistic society and everything like that. And people just want to say, Costa, quit using drugs. Mm -hmm. Reach down, get your bootstraps, pull yourself up. What I would say is people don't have bootstraps. People don't have boots. Yeah, people don't have boots. <laughs> and the thing about it is if you could just quit, it's not a disease that makes sense. You know, if you could just quit, you would. You need help and you need relationship. You know, Bill Gibson said when he was on the podcast, and if anybody hasn't listened to that podcast, I recommend listening to it. He said that addiction recovery treatment the people that participate in that, and it doesn't necessarily have to be somebody that's paid to do it, like just a friend or a family member, uh, a loved one, people that participate in that journey, like it is a journey. Mm. It is not something that you solve and it's like, okay, we're done now. Thank goodness that's over. No, it's in a lot of ways, it can be a never ending journey, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Most people don't even want to go and work for $20 an hour in a factory. How are you going to get somebody to sign up for making, you know, $12, $13 an hour and going through the emotions? A better question to ask is, how do they hire people like you who are willing to go through the ups and downs day in and day out? Well, I would say I'm on the easy side of this, the prevention, okay. because we're doing big system-wide changes. Well, Power Putnam will help people get involved in what they need to get better. Sure. We do that. So I don't want to paint a picture like I'm seeing people in recovery every day and hearing their stories and stuff like that. That side is very, very different. And it does take that emotional toll. It's an interesting sector. So in the sense like, you know, in some ways, your your business is in healthcare. Sure. You don't necessarily look for people who have been old and recovered to come help you. But this, the recovery community, those that are helping others recover, is made up of a lot of people who are in recovery themselves. 
you know, there's this piece of, I want to give back. I've been there before. I want to do that. I have a heart for this. I want to give hope to other people. You know, it's a helping field. You're going to find people. I want to change, you know, that were in, they were in college. They were like, I want to change the world. And they're out there, you know, doing it. It does take its toll. You know, it is, it's hard and um, it's not quick. Very few people go to recovery one time and it's like, Hey, I got it. It's all I need. Right. You know, um, we really need to talk more about fentanyl since it's essentially the topic of the show. But I want to ask you one more yeah. question uh, before we go back to fentanyl. So the professions that you're describing with regards to like people who have a heart for this type of work, whether it's caregiving, whether it's nursing, whether it's teaching, you know, they go into the job because they want to help somebody. They have a servant's heart, if you will. Um, they want to change the world. You know, this isn't somebody that's going to go work on Wall Street to make a bunch of money. Those professions are the ones that are experiencing record job loss. You know, I was looking this morning, 600,000 teachers left their profession last year. Does that concern you? It is concerning because when you work on a problem like this, where you're kind of shifting a lot of what's going on in the community. So if we suddenly get more money for treatment, you have to have more treatment providers. One of the interesting things that happened with some organizations is they're working on the other side of that. How do we get more people into these career paths? Mm -hmm. How do we support them? And some of the support is like, you know, you can have an RN that needs to be in a treatment facility. So you can recruit, you know, an RN can do all kinds of stuff. Sure. Same thing with, you know, social workers, with therapists and stuff like that. So there's this recruitment process going on at the same time to fill that need of just the employment side of it. But it is worrying because in and of itself in the helping field, you know, if you don't care for yourself along the way, it's easy to burn out. If all of your strategy is like, I'll just be there with everything that I can bring and and that's what I'm going to do. And that's where the success is going to come out of. No one has enough in them to just bring that every day. We're going to talk about fentanyl. Okay. Fentanyl is 50 times stronger than heroin and 100 times stronger than morphine. Unlike most substances, it can easily kill a victim the first time they take it. What are the warning signs someone has ingested fentanyl and what should you do? Uh, fentanyl is an opioid. It's going to work on your opioid receptors. You've got a ton of those in your respiratory system. And it's just going to depress that system, meaning your breathing is going to get more and more shallow. We got to breathe to stay alive. That ability to breathe keeps a bunch of other systems going. All those are going to begin to shut down. So you walk in a room, someone's on the floor. They've got shallow breathing, pale skin, their temperatures lowered. Those are some of the signs, you know, and again, you might catch it at varying stages of, of when you're seeing that happen. The thing that you have to do is call 911. And the other thing, if you are someone who is trained in using an opioid reversal medication and you have that on you, you pull that out, you stick that in their nostril and you spray that up in there and that will reverse what's going on right then. 911 and opioid reversal medication, that's it. 
You can't get them to drink coffee. You can't smack their face. You can't get them up and walk them around. And so the cool thing about that, that our state is doing, we have these people we call our ropes people. It's, uh, and of course, now that I need to think of what rope stands for, I can't, but (laughs) we have two people in our region, Suzanne Angel and Justin Cantrell, that um, will come out to any organization or individual train you on what it looks like if someone's ODing on that. And they will give you um, that opioid reversal medication, naloxone. They're available. If we can put a link on this or something like that, we've got their phone numbers or that. That's their jobs is they are distributing that medication free and they're training people what to look for and what to do if they see this happening. So do you remember when you were younger and they made you go through like CPR training in high school? I hated is it. this, but is this kind of training now like the new CPR training? Does everybody that is in school need to go through this type of training? Has it gotten to that point? Yeah. I wish I'd known the numbers of the lives that we know have been saved by this in Tennessee. Kuba was pretty proactive. I think it was Dr. Chuck Womack that made sure that people had this reversal medication on the ambulances and stuff like that. But all of our emergency personnel carry that, have that. But anybody can do that. Most insurances will cover it if you have a member in your family who's at risk. So you don't have to get it through this means. You can, you know, make a purchase of that at a pharmacy and things like that. But it's the kind of thing, gosh, we, we were having a conversation with someone that worked at a home health care agency that just mentioned the retailer in the same strip mall where they were at. They have seen the ambulance come there multiple times. And so we reached out to that retailer and it's like, can we get you this training? You know, you may think, well, I'm an accountant. I'm not ever going to be around anyone you know, you don't know. So, I mean, you recommend that pretty much everybody should have naloxone or Narcan in their home just in case or in their place of business, just in case something would happen. Yeah. Like a defibrillator. Yeah. Good point. Very good point, man. We are brave new world out there, (laughs) folks. I mean, but Hey, you know what the good thing is though? We're talking about it, you know, for a long time, I think we just stopped. We just couldn't come. We couldn't come to terms with what was going on. And we just weren't willing to talk about it. And now, because it's so prevalent Mm -hmm. and it's literally decimating communities, that we are actually willing to have this conversation and take it seriously. So, in Tennessee, deaths caused by substance overdose increased by 25.6% in 2021 and currently ranks seventh highest in overdose deaths in the nation. What are warning signs that someone is misusing substances? How can you help? And what should you do to support this individual? So there's going to be a lot of different signs depending on what the drug is. But a catchphrase is you see that they're impaired. They're acting in a way that you've not seen them act before. Again, if it's an opioid, it's this overall effect of, you know, slowing you down, slurred speech, stuff like that. You see change in people, change behavior. Sometimes it's preceded by depression or something like that. We know a lot of times there could be an episode that happens that, you know, someone loses a loved one or something like that. And you see that the drug use or misuse is a coping mechanism 
or is a way of blunting that hurt that's happening. So some of that is you can just kind of be aware of things like that. Um, the help looks like being a friend, mm-hmm. loving that person, sticking with them. But there's some concrete things that can happen. Really proud of some things that the state, our state has done. Two folks that serve the Upper Cumberland area that are called Lifeline Peer Support Coordinators. They're two men. They both have lived experience, just means they're in recovery themselves. Colby Lane is the Lifeline Peer Support Coordinator that helps all of Upper Cumberland. So anyone who suspects someone, Colby and then Chris Hodges as well works in some of the counties. They can tell you things like, um, here are the 12-step programs. Here are the faith-based programs. Here's when 12-step meetings occur in Smith County, and they're located here. They can help people enter treatment. It was interesting. I I have a family acquaintance that has been struggling, and I was talking to Chris Hodges at the fair, and he said, um, if you ever want me to go to a 12-step program with him and sit by him, I'll go. Yeah. So those guys are doing things like that. Tennessee has a Tennessee red line, and you can call or text 800-889-9789. They'll pick up or answer your text and help you with options for recovery. And then the thing that you need to do is just stick with them. Don't give a bunch of judgment and answers. People always get better and recover in relationship. They're never going to do it on their own without support and without relationship. What about medication-assisted treatment? So, like, what about something like Suboxone to help treat opioid abuse? Yeah. So, going back to the scenario that someone begins to use an opioid, it's, it's a complex constellation of things that are going on in your life. And the deeper you get into that disease, sometimes you're involved with the court system, with a justice system, you've got fines to pay, maybe you've been divorced, your kids are in custody. There's a ton of stuff going sure, on. Yeah. And that's complicated to unravel and make it all start working. And so Medicaid-assisted treatment is um, kind of big term, harm reduction. So what it means is if I'm an opioid user, I'm divorced, my kids are estranged from me, I've got a bunch of fines to pay, and I'm always going back to court, I've got a felony, so it's hard for me to get a job. I could begin to take a medication that will keep my opioid cravings at bay, but I still can function well. And so I can jump back out into the, the work market. I can begin to work with child welfare to get my kids back. I can begin to work on my other relationships. And I don't have to worry about having a craving for opioids so badly that I'll just jump off that wagon and take the deep dive in and have to start again. And so that's kind of the basics for Medicaid-assisted treatment. When people take Suboxone or if they go to like a morphine clinic, are they still experiencing some of the side effects, not just the euphoric aspects of the drug, but say, for example, how you said, you know, it kind of changes how you behave, your behavior. Do they still have that kind of drowsy sort of delayed response? So 
there's the Medicaid assisted piece of it. And there's the behavioral mental health piece of it too, that has to go hand in hand. So if I'm working with a therapist and I am seeing a doctor who is well-versed in this and they're looking at how much do I weigh, how much did I use, what is the minimal dose that I can take of my Suboxone so that I can operate during life, you know, my everyday life? Sure. I shouldn't have any slurred speech or slowness or anything like that. And, and so it can work that way. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm getting by taking that medication is no cravings, but no euphoria. Now, probably everyone knows someone who's perhaps not medicated appropriately, taken too much, or, you know, there's a lot of things that can mess sure, it up, of course. but there is a way to do that. And so a lot of times people just think, oh, it's just magic thing. Just take this medicine the rest of your life and you won't, you know, go back into active addiction. You know, the optimal thing would be take this medication, work on all those issues that we talked about. There's a thought that some people can come off that uh, Medicaid-assisted treatment as they begin to heal. And there's, um, you know, some proponents of it that say life is so complicated, you may be on it for a long time. Mm -hmm. But it has reduced your harm so much that you can be active in life and doing the things that you need to do to work on your recovery. And you're not accessing the illicit drug market, nope. you know, and that's and I think in a lot of ways, it's a double edged sword. Um, obviously, I'm not against medication um, assisted recovery. I think at this point, you know, whatever helps, yes. you know, I, I think that, you know, because we do employ people that have had issues with opioids, I don't want to say it's a stigma, but it's hard because you if you aren't under the influence of opioids and you encounter somebody that is, and if they just make one little slip in your interaction, all these red flags and questions come up, and they're trying to recover, but it knocks them right back down, you know, the shame of it all. Yep. And, and I think that's terrible. I want to ask you something about Tennessee. We are not one of the most populated states in the nation. However, we have the seventh highest overdose deaths. I mean, in your opinion, why? How is that possible? You know, one of the things, one of the data relationships when the opioid epidemic kind of first was increasing that people looked at, there's more opioid use in areas where the prospects of work were the lowest. So there was a correlation there, relationship, you know, not yeah. causation. Poverty. But certainly where there's lots of availability, it's going to happen. And this overdose, what we have to remember too, especially with fentanyl and stuff like that, or just using any illicit drug, I don't know what I have. Mm-hmm. If I go get Percocet from Cookville Kroger Pharmacy sure. and it's whatever milligram, it's the same every time I take it. If I take an illicit drug, I may have no intention of overdosing and could easily do it. Or this other thing happens if people getting out of treatment, having cleared their body of the drug that they use and going back to a dosage that I used to take, it will now kill me. And so there's those complications. But, you know, we talked a little bit about recovery and how complicated it is by oftentimes the time a person goes and begins to seek treatment for it. There's complications in that, you know, you 
get sober for the first time in life and you realize, gosh, there's these 15 things I've got to work on to, you know, put my life back together or, you know, like one very common thing that there's a relationship to substance use is, is sexual trauma. You know, during recovery, that didn't go away. You know, it may be going out, seeing a person who looks like whoever was your perpetrator or family talking about it and them blaming you. You know, there's all that stuff that it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, like 30 days, even 90 days of treatment does not give you all the keys to your success. So you may get out and and see, I don't know how to cope with that. But what I do know usually makes things better is my substance. You know, and if you go back and use it again, it may take your life. And so as human beings, we have to have hope. And after recovery, hope means more than just I've had 30 days of sobriety or, you know, you you could see like, gosh, there's a lot of things that I still need to be hopeful every day. You know, sometimes there's a, a turning there and it's, it's difficult work. And that's, that's why I love the basis of the adversity as a child is oftentimes what propels us into use because that shows you the complexity of that. And then recovery means that there's a complexity there. One of the things that Morgan and I were talking about yesterday in preparation for this episode, why do we not provide more access to therapy, specifically to treat those 10 categories that you were describing. Because if you're wanting to treat the core problem, you need to talk to somebody who's a professional. It doesn't necessarily have to be a psychiatrist, but it could be a therapist, a counselor. They need to be able to walk you through why you're feeling this way, the things that you've experienced, physical, sexual abuse, divorce, trauma, I mean, the trauma, you can pretty much say everybody at some capacity is affected by some kind of trauma. But therapy is expensive. You know, it's very expensive. And most psychiatrists and therapists are very close to retirement on average. So it's going to get even more expensive because the supply is going to go down and the demand is going to continue to increase. Why are we not emphasizing that more and making it easier to access for middle class Americans you know, that can't afford to spend $100 a week on therapy? I think part of it is the awareness piece. That is one mechanism in that constellation of healing. Um, I don't think we have the awareness that there aren't enough and that they're not here and that it's, it's a hard system to access. I don't mean to reveal too much about what all's going on in sure, May, but so I decided in January that I was going to go to therapy. So I work in this field here and know, you know, a lot of the mental health providers here. So I was like, I'm not going to go around here, you know, I'll go to <laughs> Lebanon or something like sure. that. And so I find my therapist in Brentwood. It's $175 a session. I think my insurance pays about $39 yep. and have a trip to Nashville. So that is this huge commitment to me. And it's not accessible to everyone. I don't even know if I could have done all. I couldn't have managed that when my kids were younger. You know, I just I couldn't have done all that. So it's not accessible. It's not affordable. 
And I don't think that in a, our communities and stuff like that, that we see the value for that. You think about the insurance system. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, you know, with your own personal insurance, you feel like the system's kind of against you, you know, accessing all the things that you need. And so there's a lot of things that stand in the way of that. And so developing a workforce for that, developing an education system that puts those people out in the workforce, you know, Tennessee Tech is doing a great job with that. But having, you know, just enough people in an affordable way that can support you as a therapist, as a counselor or whatever. And we've made leaps and bounds on that. When I started in 1990, I probably on one hand, maybe surely on two hands, I could count all the therapists that were available to the kids that I served. I find it so ironic that you work for Power of Putnam around addiction and recovery prevention, and your insurance only pays $39 for therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, And it's just crazy, right? I mean... It is a disclaimer. My insurance (laughs) is not through Power of Putnam. It's through the state of Tennessee. (laughs) Okay. Which is... There you go. It's even (laughs) better. (laughs) Which is ironic. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay. So, how is fentanyl created? Where is it most likely found? Who is at risk of taking it accidentally? And why would anyone knowingly experiment with fentanyl? And before you answer that, you brought some images from TBI? Yeah. From the crime lab, and it shows kind of how they make fentanyl and and methamphetamines. Well, the pictures you're looking at is just a fentanyl lab. And so to answer that first part, fentanyl is only made in a lab. You know, and I know we've talked about methamphetamine and everyone knows, you know, you could make it in the shed and stuff like that because you could drive around Cookville and get all the ingredients for it. Fentanyl is not that way. Pretty much someone at the level of chemist or has been trained directly by a chemist. There are several processes that you have to go through to do that. And one of the things you'll probably notice from the labels on all the chemicals that are in those photographs None of those are available in a in a retailer. You have to be a chemist to access those. Okay. As I understand, most of our fentanyl that is accessible on the street here is made in another nation. Okay. There's no breaking bad where, you know, you've got... Not for fentanyl yet. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no one's making it here locally. Got it. Okay. Right. So where do they get these chemicals? I mean, there's like, I'm trying to, uh, I'm, I'm going to try to read the name here. It's like a uh, propionic anhydride. Sorry, I butchered that. I do see that there's a Vlasic pickle jar <laughs> out, on here on this table too. So it is a... You know, I'm sure that was probably there because I'm sure a lot of people use it. But I mean, so they're going to be illicitly purchased. Okay. You know, the whole overseas. Yeah. The whole operation is illicit. And, um, you know, where a chemist is teaching somebody, it's not necessarily going to be a great clean lab or any anything like that. So they're all clandestine. And who's at risk for getting fentanyl? Anyone who takes an illicit drug. Unless you've completely produced the illicit drug yourself and you know where all the components came from. People are at risk if you are taking what looks like a prescription drug that you don't know the origin of. It's interesting. We have some posters and things like that that we use when we talk about fentanyl. And it'll show two pictures of, say, a Xanax or whatever like that. And they're like, which one is the authentic? 
And most of the time, the one that people pick as the authentic one is not. It's been pressed and um, it's not been handled a lot. And it may have fentanyl in it. And so one thing that we know that like college age kids are doing through Snapchat, they're thinking they're buying a stimulant. I think I'm buying Vivance or Ritalin and I'm going to take that, you know, while I'm here at college and they'll get that off Snapchat, take it. And if it's got more than that, two milligrams of fentanyl in it, they will die before the night's over. Terrifying. Yep. Absolutely terrifying. So, and it may look exactly like the Ritalin. It may have been pressed, but you know, the processes and the availability, you know, like we could get together and press some pills that look just like prescription pills. The technology for that is is not that big a deal. It seems like they are now targeting kids. I was reading an article earlier about rainbow fentanyl. Mm. You know, they're like adding food coloring to pills to make them more attractive and marketing to young children. You know, well, I mean, teenagers yes. and people in college and stuff. But still, I mean, it's like, why would anybody knowingly experiment with it? So people that are pretty far into their addiction disease are always going to look for the next high. You know, you had methamphetamine users that made their own meth. They knew there were Coleman fuel in it and all that stuff. So once you're addicted, the disease is such that you're always looking for that next high. The thing about everybody else, they're not anywhere in the disease. They're not probably thinking, I'm going to try fentanyl. They're just getting it in something else. Mm -hmm. Then the other big part, even if they know that there may be fentanyl in something, they do not understand that danger. And I had these two vials out. One had three milligrams of citric acid in it. And when you look in the vial, you can barely see them. It's so little. So it's hard to imagine that'll kill me. Like nothing else in my life do just a few grains of it. Do I believe in my life? Those people that are addicted, you know, you have things like carfentanil, which is, I think, a hundred times stronger than fentanyl. Is the end of the road when they create a drug that just kills you? Like, is that what, was that what, like, an addict is just, because, I mean, some of the documentaries point to the fact that people take these drugs, they know that they could die, Mm -hmm. and they may very well have died earlier that day and been brought back with using Narcan or Naloxone. Do you think that at some point the addiction, and and I ask you this because you have experience in this field and you're around addicts and things like that. At some point, do you think that people are just like, this is the one, you know, where I will finally just be able to stop using because I'm dead? And do you think maybe that's the the end game, create a drug powerful enough to accomplish that? You know, and that's like the unanswered question. Um, Of course, I work you know, with suicide prevention as well. And there, you know, people are always, what do you think that person was thinking? And it's like, you don't know because they're deceased. You know, we've even had people ask, like, isn't this a crazy business to be in where you're basically, you're going to kill some of the people, your customers. Yeah. You know, and of course there's never a real attachment where this comes from another country. The chemist who creates this doesn't see anyone who dies from it. It's hard to know because I know some people in, a, in addiction are in a very, very painful part of their life. And there is that, you know, I'm not going to overtly take my life, but uh, if it happens, you know, because again, we would talk about that idea of hope. Mm-hmm. We would assume that there are some folks 
that, you know, are just out of hope and it's like, who cares? You know, I I definitely don't think everyone struggling with addiction is at that point. And obviously you don't want to lead with that. No. Because even though it it may happen from time to time, we're just, we're talking as a technicality, of course, because we want to try to help understand how we got here, you know, and, and, and also how it's affecting us as a community and as a society. So I have four little kids, um, eight, six, four, and three. Uh, And as we're talking about this, like I'm just terrified, more and more terrified um, about them growing up and going to a party and and drinking a couple beers and their inhibition level goes down and some girl or guy says, here, you know, take this and, you know, bam, it's game over, right? And, and, And I think about that a lot. And I remember when I was growing up, my dad was deathly afraid of me using any type of illicit drugs. And he just jammed it in my head, like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. But I really wasn't offered any type of opioid or, you know, stuff like that. But now, you know, I just feel like kids are, I skipped the part in high school where people were taking pills. Uh, I wasn't really involved in that time frame. Now, I mean, they not just take pills, they take all kinds of stuff. So as a parent, how should I speak with my children about substance abuse? What's the best age range to talk to them? And what information should I share? And do you have any advice on what approach to take? So like with most things with our kids, what they see us do is going to speak louder than anything that we can ever say. And that's even, you know, a lot of people are probably listening going, well, well, I'm not going to ever use fentanyl or illicit drugs in front of my kids. So part of that is just how do you cope with life? You know, how do you talk about what's going on, your own pressures and stuff like that? Kids will very much pay attention to that. Every year in Tennessee for the last few years, um, there's a survey that's done. It's called Tennessee Together Student Survey. And we have results from Putnam County where we ask the age of initiation of a bunch of different substances, prescription drugs, alcohol, binge drinking, cigarette use, vaping with nicotine, vaping with marijuana, all of those. And we do this with 8th, 10th, and 12th graders. We separate out those scores in all of those grades by male and female, and there's just have an overall one. So for almost all substances, the average age of initiation is somewhere around 13 years old. So that's important for people to know because often parents will say, oh, I was going to maybe 14 or 15 start talking about them. It's like, oh, too late. And that's just a fact. That's Cookville or Putnam County. And that's, you know, not that far off for Tennessee. So you got to start before that. Having those ongoing conversations, it is not one conversation. It is not a scare tactic. It is ongoing conversations where you share with them These are our family values. These are my expectations for you. And when you're talking about the dangers of drugs and stuff like that, too, you don't want to just throw that out there. Don't you ever do this. This, you know, is so dangerous. You know, part of that message is I love and care for you. I want the best for you. This is how this can interrupt your life. Because the only message you don't want to just give them the message. Don't die. You know, don't take this, don't die. So, I mean, the message is, is 
I don't want your life to be interrupted by these, Mm -hmm. you know, and age appropriately as we begin to talk about this. And it's different with our different genders of kids, you know, for young women, knowing the dangers of being under the influence and how vulnerable that makes you for different things for young men, you know, our expectations of their behaviors around women and our behaviors around other people And that whole idea of, you know, inhibitions being lowered and what are all the dangers and the risks with that, but letting them know what are your values? What are your expectations? If you do this, how is this going to, you know, potential ways that damage you, damage your health, damage your opportunities, you know, as well as the issues with fentanyl and stuff like that, you know, the likelihood of death if someone gets a product that has too much fentanyl in it. Those are just real live things, you know, that are going on. Now, I brought you one of the Power of Putnam talk jars or conversation jars. This is really cool. Yeah. And we would design those so that you can, the different colors mean things, but you can pull one of those out and talk to your kids. And some of them are even opportunities for them to ask you questions. You know, what was your first job? Things like that. Just really so families have these rich times of conversation, getting to know one another. But, you know, kids knowing how they're loved. Sure. What the family's expectations for them are. Yeah. I do like some of these. Well, I like them all, but there's some very interesting ones. So, like they say, who in your class makes you smile? Yeah. Uh, If you could give me one piece of advice, what would you say? You know, where's your dream vacation and what would you do there if you could go? Then there's also, a, uh, I think, more of a of an emotional question like, you know, what was the one thing your parents made you do that you couldn't stand? So I guess my question on these cards, is it just to start a conversation or do they talk directly about the parents' addiction? Or do you think that through these kind of openers, maybe there might be more conversation about the addiction. Or is it just to have open communication? Because when you're an addict, you don't even talk to your kids. Well, and those are not designed for a family with a a necessarily addiction. Okay. Those are just openers. And I guess the thing to keep in mind is this is ongoing conversation. It's not one and done. I know, you know, everyone has that idea that, you know, their parent talking to them about the birds and bees. It's one 10 minute talk and you never have it again. It's not like that with the prevention effort of a parent. It's ongoing conversations. And two, you know, all of our kids are social. And so you want to know, like, who are their friends? What's going on? You want to see what is their perception when one of their first friend groups misuses a substance. You know, you want to see their reaction and see if what you're doing is enough or do you want to talk about it more? So as a parent, you don't want to be surprised and you don't want your kid to be surprised by being put in a predicament that they can't handle. And I think that's also where you talk about if you are at a thing and this happens, here's what I want you to do. A lot of families have that where it's like, hey, anytime night or day, call me. I'm not going to ask you a bunch of questions. I'm not going to get mad at you. I want you safe. And I think that's a big piece of this conversation. I love you. I want you safe. So moment of truth. Here's the question that I've been wanting to ask. When we started talking, uh, we said something uh, along the lines of, you know, the train has essentially left the station, right? 
we've inferred that there's a almost an impossibility to stop the flow of drugs into the United States. Carfentanil, uh, stronger versions of drugs, fentanyl continue to keep coming up. And so obviously things are becoming more and more dire. We're trying to fix things by improving the conditions of poverty. But then when we talk about funding services, uh, like homelessness, for example, we look at an example like San Francisco and we see that, you know, that didn't necessarily help, that there are, there are specific core principles that we're trying to change. Some people would chalk this up as the human condition. What I find interesting, and this is where the question comes in, are we trying to target children because we've lost the battle with the adult population? I think one reason why we target children are our common values of their vulnerable and it is an adult's responsibility to care for them and prepare them, things like that. I think that's why a lot of effort goes there and just kind of know, you know, how brain development goes. You know, kid doesn't know how to handle every situation. And this is part of what we train them for in our state, in our world, in our community. There's probably lots of reasons why there is not as much focus on adults, especially if you are an adult yourself that look through the lens of someone that is addicted, like where their value is or how much value is left or what's the likelihood. And so those are different. And so hopefully today, what I would want to do is paint a picture of every individual that I might ever come across. They have value and worth because of their humanity. And on a very personal level, I would look at that. Be They are just an image bearer of the creator that I follow. Mm-hmm. And so I, I see value. And because of that, you know, there's never a time when I should give up. You know, for me in a very personal way too, you know, being in this work, you're drawn to areas where, you know, there's people who need to be in recovery. And, you know, I know those people and I know their names and what they look like and what they mean to other people and the value that they have currently, even on their worst day. And, you know, I'm always looking forward to that value that they have when they can begin to put this behind them. You interviewed a great friend of mine, you know, Susanna. Oh, yeah. Y'all love her. She has value. She had value on her worst day. And I look at her now where she's at and it's like, this is wonderful. Look. It's incredible. She can walk out and help because of her own lived experience. And there's tons of people in our community like that. You know, but I can, I, I recognize people look through another lens and see them in a different way. And it's like, okay, there's only so many resources to put around there's not a lot of return and investment over here. Let's, let's push it over to this way. I have a hard time seeing that yeah, or doing that. I get the economics of it and, and stuff like that. But, you know, again, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that people can change as we care for them and, you know, are in relationship with them and, and help them get to the services and the things that they need. John, this has been one of the most important podcasts that I have ever done. And it's been an emotional conversation, you know, and and I'm sure that people that are going to listen to this episode uh, are going to feel some of that emotion. But on that note, 
we always like to end the show on a high note. Sure. So, John, who is someone that makes you better when you're together? So it's my wife. And for a lot of different reasons, she makes me personally better, challenging, putting up with me, everything like that. She is a chemistry professor at Tennessee Tech. And so a lot of this work, I'm always, I remember in the methamphetamine thing, I'm like, Kathy, how do you make methamphetamine? I don't know. You know, why do you want to know? And so we have these conversations about the science of a lot of this. And, you know, so a lot of mornings over coffee, it's, did you know? And we're swapping stuff back and forth. I think she's a great teacher because she understands, you know, some of the adversity her students have gone through and she understands more about addiction and recovery and it makes her much more sensitive to those students. And, um, you know, she's a great mother, a great friend, a great teacher and so much of our work, especially as we've gotten older, you know, in the community and stuff like that. We're, we're kind of in it together. And she definitely makes me a better person. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Better Together with Costa Yepafonsiv. If you've enjoyed listening and you want to hear more, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Leave us a review or better yet, share this episode with a friend. Better Together with Costa Yepafonsiv is a Costa Yepafonsiv production. Today's episode was written and produced by Morgan Franklin. Post-production, mixing, and editing by Mike Franklin. Want to know more about Costa? Visit us at costayepafonsiv.com. We're better together.